the last time I taught, we went over verses 1 through 4 in the second chapter of James. We learned that this was a, another way that Yahweh could test our faith to see if we held one brother higher than another based on outward appearance or social status or something like that. And our brother James gives us a fine example in the first few verses of the second chapter of James. He talks about the gold-fingered man and the man dressed in fine linens. And then he compares him to the poor beggar that comes in and how we as, a, as people in church would exalt the one with the gold rings on and the fine clothes. We would exalt him to a status greater than the one that was a beggar that might smell or something like that. And he said that we were, we were condemned for, for judging over our brothers this way. We must be honest in our dealing with people and, we not, and we're not to show favoritism between the rich or the poor. So that brings us into verse 5. Well, we're going to start today, and then we'll go through verse 13. Verse 1, it says, My brothers, hold your faith in our glorious Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, without showing favoritism. For suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes so that you say, Sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, Stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers, didn't Elohim choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonor that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that you bear? If you really carry out the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you're a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Looking back at verse 5 and 7, I wanted to read all 13 verses to get the context of what we'll be studying today. But looking back at verse 5 through 7, I want to read them again and then we'll get into it. Verse 5 says, Listen, my dear brothers, didn't Elohim choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonor that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that you bear? He says, Listen, my dear brothers, and this is a call from, from our brother James. Some translations say, Beloved brothers. He's respectfully asking to listen, asking the people to listen to him. He's saying it in a, in a loving way so that somebody might hear what he has to say. It would be like uh, maybe somebody walking up and put their hand on your shoulder and uh, kind of making you feel comfortable so that you'd hear what they had to say. But that's what he's saying. He says, he says, Listen, my dear brothers, hear me for what I'm about to say to you is very important. He says, didn't Yahweh choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? The kingdom belongs to the, to the ones that he's promised to those who love him and those that he, that he has chosen are the poor of the world. And he says, yet you dishonor that man. You, you people in the congregation, you dishonor the poor man. Now, last time I taught, I mentioned how it was okay to be rich, and I named several people in the Bible that were rich, like Job and Abraham and and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, these were all rich men. King Solomon was also a rich man who was probably one of the richest men 
that ever lived in time, even today. He's probably he's probably more wealthy than, than the Bill Gates of today, way more wealthy. But even though it's okay to be rich, the majority of Yahweh's people are poor. And it says right there in verse 5 that Yahweh has chosen them. He's chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Not the poor in spirit. Yahweh's not talking about the people, the poor in spirit, the contrite one. He's not talking about that. He's talking about materialistically poor people. They don't have a lot. He says those people are the ones that he's chosen to be heirs of the world or heirs of the kingdom. These people are the ones who need help, who cry out of lack of resources. Yahweh's chosen chosen the poor, and he looks out for them. Consider Yahweh's very nature out of the mouth of the psalmist. In Psalms chapter 41 and verse 1, it says, Happy is the one who cares for the poor. Yahweh will save him in the day of adversity. In other words, you take care of the poor, and Yahweh will take care of you. In Psalm 72, verse 4, he says, May he vindicate the afflicted among the people, help the poor, and crush the oppressor. And in Psalms 113, verse 7, he, it says that he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the garbage pile in order to seat them with the nobles, with the nobles of his people. I could go on and on with examples from Scripture about how Yahweh loves the poor. He's chosen them, just as James tells us, and he's chosen them to be rich in faith. See, often the materialistically rich people are quick to try to fix whatever problems that they have with their own money and with their own resources. But poor people can't do that. So they cry to greater means beyond themselves. Being Yahweh, they cry to him for help. That's what poor people do. If you have plenty of money, you might try to fix every problem that comes your way. If you have plenty of resources, you might do that. But a poor man, he can't do that. He doesn't have resources. He doesn't have money. So what does he do? He cries out to Yahweh. This causes him to draw closer to Yahweh and strengthens his faith. It strengthens his faith. And this is what makes him rich in faith, just like James said. Has anybody ever noticed in here, when you finally run out of means and stop trying to do things yourself and start crying out to Yahweh for help, how much closer you draw to him? And how much more saturated in your life he becomes? About eight years ago, I was building my house over here. I bought the land from Arnold and started building my house. Halfway through it, or towards the end of the house, of building the house, the the bank um, that we had uh, done business with, borrowed the money from, forecloses in the middle of 2007, financial crisis across the world. Everybody was hurting, and uh, the bank foreclosed. So the so the one that was backing our loan stopped giving us money to pay the people who were working on our house. You know, if you understand how construction work loan works. You pay the people as they work. The bank puts money in your account, that kind of stuff. Well, people had done the work, but I wasn't getting a check from the bank, and I didn't want to stop building the house, and the bank didn't want to give me any money, or they couldn't. They'd been, they'd, they'd been foreclosed on, and the FDIC had overtaken the bank that was, that was giving me the money. So anyway, I owe a lot of people money at this time, and, and um, I consider myself a Christian man. I didn't know Yahweh all that well. I don't, I don't think I knew him at all, but anyway... All this starts to take place, and I don't have the money to pay the people that I've, that I've hired to work on my place, and I'm, I'm major in debt. I'm not talking about two or $3,000. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands, $100,000, and don't have no means, no ways to pay these people. And they're getting mad. You know, they're getting mad. And I'd done, I'd done the work or had the work done on faith that, the, of course, the bank would keep their end of the deal, and I'd keep my end of the deal. At the end, I'd pay the note as long as they give me the money up front. Well... 
all this took place and it took place and kept on going and and uh I spent days and days and countless hours on my knees crying and praying and begging Yahweh to help me. And I, I finally got to my wit's end and I just couldn't do it anymore. And um man, I had people threatening my life. I had people threatening me personally wanting to I mean wanting to whip me because I I couldn't pay them. And I, and I it's not that I didn't want to. I would try. I mean, every every dollar that I'd make on the on the side, pay, I'd pay those people before I'd pay my own bills. And uh, but anyway, it was just a bad situation. I remember crying and begging him, and finally I just gave up. And I gave up, and I gave it to Yahweh, and I literally said this: I said, Yahweh, this is your house, and I don't care what you do with it. You can burn it down, you can tear it down, you can allow me to live in it, you can do whatever you want to with it, but it's not mine anymore. I don't want anything to do with it. And he did. He did just that. He worked everything out. Praise Yahweh, we finished it. We still live in it today because he took care of it, not me. But the point I'm making is not about a house. What I want you to see is that at my lowest point in my life, poor-wise, it's the poorest I've ever been, the lowest point in my life, poor, monetarily, I wasn't just poor, I was negative poor. I owed more money than I had. It was, it was definitely the, the poorest I've ever been. And he not only, he not only fixed that for me, the financial problems, but he, but he grew me spiritually in the point of being poor. I believe Yahweh chose that point in my life to bring me to my knees, to knock me to my knees, and then to make me rich in faith like James mentions. Through that experience, I learned to, tr- to, to trust solely on Yahweh. He's our provider alone, and everything we have is only because he gives it to us. And once I put my trust in him, he opened up a whole new wealth of knowledge to me. The money and the monetary benefit that I got from going through that trial was not that I got to keep my house, but that, but that I grew in faith that I knew that I could trust Yahweh no matter what circumstance come my way. I grew there. I learned, to, I learned to trust him because he gives to us, and he's our only provider. And once I put my trust in him, he opened up a whole new wealth of knowledge to me. I learned his name. I learned that his law is still for us today. I learned to study more deeper than I've ever studied before in my life. And praise Yahweh, I'm still studying today, and I'll keep to, keep on until he, until he stops it, you know. So Yahweh chooses the poor of this world to be rich in faith. At our poor state, we draw closest to him. And I don't know about you, but I'd much rather be poor and rich in faith than have all the money. I could care less about it. I want. I just want to be rich in faith. I told my dad not too long ago, we were standing up at the barn, and he was talking to me, and he, he said, son, you've been successful in, in just about everything you've done, and he was really just building me up, you know, and we were talking, and I told, I told my dad, I said, dad, take it all away. I don't want it, and I don't care if I have it. I don't care how much money I make. I don't care how much money I've had. You can take all of it and give it to somebody Give me a heart like Enoch had. Give me faith to walk like that. Give me a heart of um, of Abraham, of faith that I would that I would be willing to sacrifice my only son just because of the words of Yahweh. Give me that kind of faith. Take everything else and and uh, do away with it. And um, worldly people don't understand spiritual things, and the carnal man can't understand things like that. But but to me. That's what needs to happen, you know. Take this stuff away from me. Not that I don't. I don't want to be. I don't want to be poor. Nobody wants to be poor. I don't mean it that way. All I'm saying is, I want to be. I want to be the spiritual man much more than I want to be the man with means. 
So how can we possibly judge or show favoritism between the rich and the poor when the only thing that matters is what's in the inside? Psalm 17, verse 5 says this, The one who mocks the poor insults his maker, and one who rejoices over disaster will not go unpunished. So Yahweh makes us all, and he has us all in the economical state that we're in. And remember what Deuteronomy 8 says in verse 17 and 18. It says this, it says, You may say to yourself, My power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember, Yahweh your mighty one gives you the power to gain wealth. In order to confirm his covenant, he swore to your fathers as it is today. If you judge against someone who is poor, you might be judging against someone who is rich in faith and an heir of the kingdom. Who are you to do that? Yahweh has chosen the poor, James tells us, in verse 5. We should not ignore that. In Proverbs 21 and verse 13, it says this, The one who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Proverbs 28 and verse 27, it says, The one who gives to the poor will not be in need, but the one who turns his eyes away will receive many curses. In Proverbs 31, verse 9, it says, Speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and the needy. If we show favoritism and ignore the poor, we'll cry out and not be heard one day, and we'll receive many curses. That's what the Bible says. Do you remember how how Yahweh regarded the poor in the book of Isaiah when the judges judges of Israel were being unfair and showing favor to the rich? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 14. Yahweh brings this charge against the elders and leaders of his people. You have devastated the vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor, says Yahweh, the mighty one of hosts. He says that the unjust judges have devastated his vineyard, ruined his harvest, if you will. Then in chapter 10 of Isaiah, he says, What will you do on the day of punishment? Who will you run to? Let's look at chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I want you to see that being poor is a lifestyle that Yahweh protects. Woe to those enacting crooked statutes and writing oppressive laws to keep the poor from getting a fair trial and to deprive the afflicted among my people of justice so that the widows can be their spoil and they can plunder the fatherless. What will you do on the day of punishment when devastation comes from far away? What will you run, where, who will you run to for help? Where will you leave your wealth? There will be nothing to do except crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. In all this, his anger is not removed and his hand is still raised to strike. In other words, we should say this, Yahweh, you love the needy. You help the poor. You protect them. You reach down to those who are in need. It's part of your character, as, and we'd be fools to not want to be like you. That's what we should say. We cannot show favoritism against the poor because we dishonor Yahweh in doing so. That's what happens when we, when we show favoritism. James goes on to say in verses 6 and 7, you can turn back to the book of James if you would like. James goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they even blaspheme the noble name that you bear? These rich people that you cater to, the people, undoubtedly this was a problem in the, in the early church, and James is addressing it right here. But he says, the rich people you cater to come in, they drink your wine, they sit in your finest seats in the church while you put your poor, beloved, rich in faith brother beside your footstool. That's what you do. The rich come in, you treat them like kings, and the ones that are rich in faith, the ones that are real Christians, the ones that are truly sold out to Yahweh, you stick them over in the corner. 
You give the rich all your attention and the finest things you've only the finest things you have only for them to drag you off into the courts and blaspheme you and all that you stand for. Everything the disciples had been taught to by their master, that's what that's what the early church would have stand for. That's what we should stand for, it's everything that we've been taught by our master. And you and you and you put all that aside to uphold rich people. These rich people are possibly, I don't, I'm not sure exactly who they are, but it's possible that they're Sadducees or they're scribes or just other noble men in a noble position. They mock because they practice what they ought not. That's what the rich people do. The Messiah says they're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones. They're, they're not real. They're not believers. They're not believers. They're not people of Yahweh. I don't think this passage has anything to do when it says... Um, they mock the noble name that you bear. I don't think it has anything to do talking about the name of Yahweh or Yeshua. No matter what stand you take there, I don't think that that's what, that's what it's talking about. I think it's just talking about a title of a group such as Christians or believers in faith. This is why James says, I think, James says in verse 4, you have discriminated amongst yourselves, meaning believers or fellow Christians. And they're mocking everything you stand for, talking about the, the noble men or people of high position. Undoubtedly, the believers that James is writing to here would rather appease the rich and find favor in the eyes than their own poor brothers in the faith. They chose exactly opposite of what Yahweh would choose. Yahweh looks out for the needy and the poor, but the brothers in the church were exalting the rich. The ones that will be humbled and one will be brought low, the church is trying to bring them up. I think Albert Barnes sums it up pretty well with this quote. He quotes this about the about the the rich people there. And I quote, They are known to despise religion in their hearts and not to be sparing of their own words of reproach and scorn towards Christianity. Though they are known to be blasphemers and to have the most thorough contempt for serious spiritual religion, yet there is many a professing Christian who would prefer to be at a party given by such persons than at a prayer meeting with their poor brethren or where their poor brethren are assembled who would rather be known by the world to be the associates and friends of such persons than of those humble believers who can make no boast of rank or wealth or who are looked upon, looked down upon with contempt by the great. End of quote. We show favoritism to these contemptuous people just because they're rich, and we miss out on Yahweh's chosen rich in faith but outwardly poor brother. We miss out on those. Let's read verses 8 and 9. If you really carry out the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted convicted by the law as transgressors. James here says if you carry out the royal law, what does he mean, royal law? Well, this royal law is none other than the law of Moses given by Yahweh. The reason I know this is, one, because the word royal, royal comes from the Greek word basilikos, and it means sovereign or preeminent. That's what the word royal means. And I think it's a great way to, uh, to um, or a great adjective to add to Yahweh's law. I think, it's, I think it's beautiful. It's royal. It comes from a precious king, a holy king, a righteous king. It's a law given by a sovereign king. And we all know that the only sovereign king is none other than Yahweh. And two, the, the second reason that I know it's referring to the law of Moses is because James says it's prescribed in Scripture, which is the Greek word, Graphe. The word scripture is graphe. If I'm saying that right, maybe graphe. And that means it's a document of holy writ. And if you know anything about the early church, you should know 
that the only Bible that the early church had would have been the Tanakh, the Law and the Prophets, our Old Testament as we refer to it today. So when James says the law was prescribed by Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament, the Holy Law of Moses. In this law, there's a commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're really religious, you'll keep this commandment, James says. Then you'll be doing well. This commandment is given in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, along with several other commandments. And while they're all important, this one is the second greatest commandment given in all of scriptures per our Lord in Mark chapter 12 and verse 31. It is, a, it is great not only because our Savior says so, but because of what it represents. It holds within it the last six commandments of the ten that pertain to man. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't commit adultery, murder, covetous things, steal, or bear false witness against him. The first four of the ten commandments that pertain to man are covered under the first greatest or the greatest commandment, according to our Lord and Savior in Mark 12, verse 29, which is the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4. It says, Yahweh is the one, Yahweh is one, and to love Yahweh with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I'm paraphrasing. I didn't quote all of Deuteronomy 6, 4. The whole law, the royal law, James calls it, hinges on these two greatest commandments. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 40. So let, so let me put it this way. I'll put it to you like this. Everything we do, we do to better ourselves. That's what we do as human beings. That's how we think. We work for ourselves. We eat for ourselves. We think for ourselves. In other words, we care for ourselves the best. That's what we do. When you get up in the morning, you go to work, you have one person in mind. You or possibly your family, I guess. But mostly you. When you brush your hair, you brush your hair so that you look good. When you eat, you eat so that you're satisfied. When you drink, you drink so that you're satisfied. We always think of ourselves more than we think of others. It's human nature. That's what we do. We don't steal from ourselves or murder ourselves, and we don't covet our own things. We already have them. That would be foolishness. So we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's the whole point behind the greatest commandment. If, the second greatest commandment, if you love your neighbor as yourselves, you'll brush his hair, so to speak. You'll brush his hair the way that you'd want, want it to be brushed. You wouldn't, you wouldn't mistreat him. You'd feed him the same way that you'd feed yourself. You wouldn't buy him a, a hot dog and you eat a steak. It doesn't work that way. You wouldn't drive a Rolls Royce and he drives a, you know, a doodlebug. I don't know. But, any, but anyway, my point, my point is, you don't, you, if you treated your neighbor as yourself, hey, they, they would live as high, as high on the hog as you do, as we say in the South. If we don't consider our neighbor as ourselves, then we transgress or break the royal law that was given to us by Yahweh's servant, Moses. It is a holy and just and perfect royal law that leads to life. And we, and we do well to keep it, as it says in verse 8. But if we don't act righteously and break it by showing favoritism and not loving our neighbor as ourselves, then it's the, law of, it's the law of transgressors that convicts us to sin, as it says in verse 9. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. It says, For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you're a lawbreaker. See, everyone's guilty of breaking the law in one way or the other. There's, there's no one in here who has truly always loved his neighbor as himself. Nobody. I don't care who you are sitting in here. You've, you've not always loved your neighbor as yourself. And by that alone, you've broken the entire law. 
James says in verse 10, if you broke one law, you've broken it all. And in verse 11, he illustrates it by saying the one who gave the law against adultery also gave the law against murder. So just because you don't commit adultery with another man's wife doesn't mean that you're not a sinner. If you murder someone, or even if you bear false witness, you're a liar. You're a lawbreaker. Everyone who has ever transgressed Yahweh's Torah is a sinner in desperate need of mercy and of grace. That that includes everyone in this room. We've all stumbled at one point in life, every one of us. And we all and all of us have broken the entire law by doing so. So what do we do? What do we do about it? Well, at least in this context, look at verse 12 and verse 13. It says, Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. James is telling us to speak and act like those will be judged by the law of liberty. In other words, walk in the laws will be judged by it. Even though we have been liberated from the bondage of the depths of the law, or the, or the, or the, debt, the debt of the law, I can't speak, sorry. I'm not, telling you, I'm not telling you that we don't have to keep the law, that we are free from the bondage of the law, like the church world likes to say. See, this is their most grave mistake. Modern Christianity thinks that since we're gifted of breaking all the law, if we're breaking only one, like James says here, they get that right. They think that God is gracious and doesn't expect them to keep it all then. That's, that's what they think. I'm standing here today to tell you there's no forgiveness in the law, at least in that context. I'm standing here today to tell you that there's no forgiveness in the law and that Yahweh does not have any tolerance for, at all for violating his law. Sin is transgression of the law, and the penalty of judgment for sin is death. There is no forgiveness in the law, only judgment, at least at least the way I'm putting it here. Unless you keep the law perfectly, and we all know we haven't, then our judgment is death because Yahweh doesn't, doesn't, doesn't accept anything other than perfectness or perfection. This is why we put our faith in Yeshua the Messiah as our Savior. He is the only one who kept the law perfectly and therefore the only one who can cover our sins and save us for the judgment we deserve. If there was forgiveness in the law, we wouldn't need a Savior, brothers and sisters. That is what the church world has done. They have turned the grace of our Lord into a license to sin by saying they don't need to keep it. We're under grace, not under law. God will forgive us anyway because the law was bondage and too hard to keep. So I ask you, what's the point in having a Savior? If you, if you believe that, what's the point in having a Savior? If you believe that you're under grace and you don't have to keep the commandments and sin is transgression of the law, what's the point? We don't need a Savior. If, we can, if somehow we can justify ourselves by works of the law, why do we need a Savior? That's not the gospel message of the Bible. We're doomed by the law, of tra- law as transgressors and therefore in desperate need of a Savior. The law has no mercy. Instead, it points out your sin. It shows you that you have transgressed a holy decree from Yahweh and that you are doomed to judgment in hell. Unless, unless you put your faith in the Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. So I'm saying we have not been liberated from the law, but we have been liberated from its bondage. Of judgment. That's what we've been set free from. That's the debt that's been paid. That's the debt that's been canceled. We're, we're, we're liberated from that. It's not only the royal law that is set before us as a holy decree which will convict us to death if we choose not to follow it, but it also is a liberating law of freedom that points us to obedience and the keeping of the statutes that are bound within it and to eternal life in the person of Yeshua, Yahweh's own Son, our example and Savior sent by the mercy of Yahweh. 
So speak and act and walk in the law, James tells us, for the judgment is without mercy to the one who shows who doesn't show mercy. He says in verse 13, So just as mercy has been shown to you and you've been allowed to see where you've been wrong, and he always granted you repentance and salvation through his only son, he always granted you the mercy that you don't have to undergo his judgment by transgressing his law, because he gives you that mercy, so you are to be merciful also to those who you speak with and interact with in life. In other words, be merciful to the poor. Be kind to them. Don't show favoritism against them. Yahweh chooses to give his mercy to those whom he will and has no regard for rich over poor. You don't deserve the gift of mercy, but just as you've been given it, you have to give it to others. For the one who has shown you mercy also will be the one who shows them mercy, maybe through the through your hands. Maybe he relieves some kind of hardship in their life by you. Maybe he uses you as a vessel. Be ye there merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Luke chapter 6, that's what our Messiah, Messiah says. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The mercy that our Father Yahweh has given us through his only begotten Son, the perfect keeper of the law, it triumphs over the judgment that we all deserve because we're all wretched sinners worthy of the death penalty. Every one of us deserve to die and burn. Every one of us. Not one person sitting in here. I don't care who you are, how many commandments you keep, how long your beard is, or how short your tassels are, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Those are all, all great things, and we should all keep them. Those are commandments. They don't justify you. Mercy's, mercy's given. And our punishment is withheld by Yahweh. The grace is applied to us by Yahweh through the, through the gift of His own Son. Nothing we've done. Not one thing. Brothers and sisters, I, I urge you today to examine your life. Let's not show partiality, favoritism towards the, to those of lesser means. James says it's sin, it's sin to show favoritism in church. And Yahweh's a merciful, mighty one. Let's be merciful too. I'm, I'm glad that Yahweh gave me mercy in my hardship. Like I said, I, I know I've told y'all my story before, but <clears throat> Yahweh gave me mercy in my in my hardship. And when I cried and begged for him to, to, to take away some of the, the hardship, I remember sitting on my knees for hours. The floor would be wet where I would cry. I would just, I'd beg for him because I was humiliated. I was humiliated. I was brought low. I was a little man, you know. And um, I begged him and begged him and begged him. And finally, he did. He took away, he took away at least my problem at the time. He took, he took that away. And um, I'm glad that he heard my cry. And and he says in the in the Psalms I read it a while ago that that we should we should listen to the cry of the poor. And when the poor cry out, be the be the one that helps them. Lend a hand to the needy, because one day you will cry out. You will believe you me. You will cry out, and you will you want Yahweh to hear your your cry and your plea. So uh, be mindful of those who are of of a lesser means. That doesn't mean that they're of lesser faith. Matter of fact, he's chosen the poor of the world to be the rich in faith. So, all right, we'll pray and get out of here. Yahweh, Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your blessings, Father. I thank you for the rain, and I thank you for all the people that were able to make it here tonight. And Yahweh, I just pray that what I've said tonight is edifying to this congregation and honoring to you. Father, I just—I only want to look good for you. I don't—I don't care what other people see me as, or whether I have money or don't have money, or 
or they have materialistic things, Father, I'd much rather be rich in faith. So, Father, if it means being poor to make me rich in faith, then by all means, build my faith. You know, I love you so much. I'm so thankful for all that you've done for everybody here, how we've been blessed. We all have clothes on our backs and food in our mouth, undoubtedly, and, and I, at least we're dry right now. So, yeah, we give you praise for that, and we're thankful for, for all that you've done for us. We're most grateful for your only begotten Son and the atoning work that was that was done at Calvary. We're, we're thankful for his unblemished life and his sacrificial death for for our sins so that we may have eternal life. Father, we give you praise for that, for your perfect plan, for everything that you put together and so that we might so we might have salvation through him and be able to spend eternity with you and your son. Father, we love you and we ask all these things in your precious and holy son's name. Amen.